I think the biggest mistake that we have made in recent, recent history is around crypto. Two things, being passive around it and the default being negative. And to a certain extent, that's because they don't necessarily understand what it is. Any nation would feel somewhat threatened by a sovereignless currency gaining the kind of popularity that crypto has gotten. But at the same time, it's here, it's real, it's not going away. And so the biggest failure to me is that Treasury or the White House, for that matter, really have missed that. Hi, everyone. It's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from Fintech Today, where we talk about all things fintech. In this episode, I am joined by Bradley Tusk, the CEO of Tusk Ventures. Uh, Bradley, there, there's a lot that we can dive into. I mean, you, you have this venture perspective, but you've also done a lot on the regulatory side, too. You have a, a background in law a little bit, correct? Yeah, so my background originally uh, is in both government law and politics. So I was Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager when he ran for mayor of New York, worked for him at City Hall, and I spent four years as the deputy governor of Illinois writing the state's budget operations, legislation, policy, and communications. I spent a couple years in Washington as Chuck Schumer's communications director, um, have a, a law degree in and so that was really my career for the first 10, 15 years of it. And then pivoted to tech kind of by accident. Uh, I had started a political consulting firm in 2010 and early 2011. Uh, a friend of mine called up and said, hey, there's this guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? Um, I become Uber's first political advisor that day. I get really lucky when Travis calls back and says, listen, I can't afford your fee. You take equity. I didn't know what equity meant, but thank God I said yes. Uh, that was back during the Series A. And then I ran all the campaigns to legalize ride sharing around the U.S. Um, that worked. Repeated the process with Clear to get them into airports. That worked. Realized there was probably a broader nexus between uh, technology and regulation. And I used that to raise our first venture capital fund in 2016. And we are still are, to my knowledge, the only venture capital fund that deliberately invests in early stage startups in highly regulated industries where we believe that we can actually improve the regulatory climate and make them more valuable as a result. So if you focus on early stage and you focus on things that are in a very regulated environment, you must be focusing a lot on crypto these days because that's the first yeah. thing that comes to my mind. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. Crypto, NFTs, uh, a whole bunch of things in and around fintech. Um, and we are, so in our first fund, we were investors in both Coinbase and Circle, so that, that's worked out pretty well. But uh, since then, we've kind of gone into different types of crypto companies. We've got into uh, NFTs. We're working with a company Stealth right now, kind of on a creator economy uh, platform. So, um, yeah, so I think we've kind of touched fintech in lots of different ways. What in particular in crypto is most interesting to you right now? You mentioned, you know, NFTs, you were an early investor in Coinbase, but, you know, yeah. in today's day and age where it feels like everything is moving even quicker than what it was, you know, a year or two ago, uh, you know, how are, how are you focusing your time? Yeah. I mean, I think for, for us, it, it's really a question of figuring out are the companies that we investing in, uh, in the NFT space, in the crypto space, um, are there regulatory problems, things that we believe we can really impact and change, right? So, for example, um, if, if it's, hey, they need bit licensing, money transmission licenses in different states, very achievable. If it's, we need to think through what the regulatory framework for NFTs will be, should it be uh, regulated security, should it be by the states, should it be by the federal government, 
how do you shape all that? Something we could definitely do. But, you know, there was a company we passed on uh, the other day that I, I liked, and it was around creating kind of documents for uh, proxy battles and other types of security, you know, form issuances for crypto. But what it would have meant was the SEC saying, okay, for crypto, now you have to provide investors with this set of information just like a normal public traded company would. That will probably happen someday. Um, but to me, given that you can't even right now get the SEC to take kind of a, a holistic view on how to regulate crypto overall, um, you know, trying to accomplish that one particular thing just didn't seem realistic or worth it in, in a several year time frame. So it's really where we think we can move the needle. There was an interesting piece that you wrote recently, and I want to, um, you know, dive into it a little bit more because sure. Ian, my co-founder, wrote something the other day tying um, regulation saying that it's it's so hard when it happens at a state level versus a federal level, sort of like the cannabis industry has largely happened at a state versus a federal level. And crypto yeah. has been largely the same. And this is sort of what your piece focused on a little bit about how that that is going to hinder the, the development and innovation in this space if we don't make it more of a federal thing and just keep doing like New York bit licenses and, and, and now a lot of stuff. You have the Miami mayor very into it, New York's yep. new mayor yep. very into it. Yeah. Um, yep. And then other places, not so much. Right. So look, I mean, I, I think that there are components of state regulatory kind of government that, that fit into the crypto world, especially whether it's a license to you know, transmit money or, or have, you know, bit license or whatever it is. So there is certainly a role for cities and states in it. But in reality, from a regulatory standpoint, this, this ought to be a treasury issue. This ought to be an SEC issue, right? And I think part of the problem is Washington has just not taken the whole issue all that seriously. So occasionally they'll crack down on a fraudulent ICO. Occasionally the Gary Gensler will kind of make some comments about crypto or will send Coinbase a letter or something like that. But, you know, to me, there's such a bigger opportunity here, right? So China has banned crypto, which makes total sense if you're China. Um, but to me, that's a, it's a huge chance because we can make the U.S. the global home of crypto. And I understand that by definition, crypto is a sovereignless currency, and it's part of what I love about it. But at the same time, the jobs have to be somewhere, right? And, you know, I, I think that we ought to be making a very strong play to say, you know, the U.S. is a leader in fintech. And a lot of the spirit of crypto kind of fits with the overall American entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, let's be proactive about this and capture these jobs and keep them here. Um, Washington is certainly not doing that. Um, you do see some cities and states competing with each other. Like there's been this little bit of fun jousting between Mayor Suarez and Miami and Mayor, Mayor Adams in New York overtaking their paychecks in crypto and things like that. Uh, but, but fundamentally... Washington needs to step up here and they're dropping the ball. And where I think the crypto community is equally at blame is being politically sophisticated enough to understand that you are only taken seriously in politics and government if people believe that you have the ability to impact their next election, right? And this is true in city government, state government, federal government. But ultimately, the thing that I learned in my 15 years of government politics is every policy output was the result of a political input. And if you want different policies, you need to make what you want in the political interest of the people who make the policies. So if they think that you could help reelect them or hurt their chances of reelection, they will work with you and do what you want most of the time. If they think you don't matter, they will ignore you. And right now, politically, the crypto world is wrong. 
Yeah, it does feel like the crypto world is getting to a point where there might be an extent where they they could swing an election and whatnot, though. Or am I am I giving them too yeah, much no, credit? No, it's, it's it's well, it's not crazy in theory. There's mm-hmm. just no infrastructure to to effectuate it, right? So yes, you, you could see a world where, first of all, th- there's no shortage of available cash in the sector right now. Mm-hmm. So hiring lobbyists and kind of going through all the normal stuff that, that every industry does um, should be done. And it's just a question of someone putting in the work. It's not a question of whether or not they, they could do it. And then the other part would be, um, could crypto uh, enthusiasts have an impact on an election? So look, you know, I, I think the answer is, is yes. Let me give you two examples. One I mentioned earlier, Uber. Uh, the way that we took on the taxi industry at the time, we were this tiny little startup and they were a pretty big sector, is we were able to mobilize our customers and get millions of people over time, you know, to email or tweet or text or in some way um, tell their elected officials, hey, I really want this thing. And that was enough to win. Or, for example, when we invested in FanDuel and we ran all the campaigns to legalize daily fantasy sports betting, um, we would go to elected officials in different states and say, listen, you know, you have this many people in your district who play FanDuel or DraftKings. Let's be honest. They don't know who you are. They don't even necessarily know that there's such a thing as a state senator. But they love daily fantasy sports betting. You take it away from them, we are going to make sure that they know it was you, and we're going to register them, and we're going to turn them out to vote. And as a result, again, we want in pretty much every single jurisdiction. So I think that if, if you can mobilize your customers um, to advocate politically, you can be incredibly effective. And I think the crypto community is kind of well positioned to do that. Um, but that takes a lot of work and expense and effort. And it takes someone in the crypto world saying, hey, if we don't get politically more sophisticated, uh, regulations are going to come down, just like the taxation provision in the infrastructure bill that we don't like and we won't be able to really fix. So I, I think this is the moment the community needs to get that. I might be wrong in thinking this, but when you're using the Uber example, no one really thought that the people using Ubers were like crypto bros or these people that were a little bit out there or anything. And I feel like that that perception is just different for the crypto community. So while it's very easy to get them to speak up, like just go on Twitter for five minutes and you will see people saying a ton of things about crypto. Um, I I think it might be a little bit tougher to get people in DC to take them as seriously as like bank employees taking Ubers to and from like work or the airport and stuff. Yeah, yes and no. Yeah, but maybe. But I think FanDuel, you know, bros playing fantasy sports and doing sports betting it are probably often many of the same people who are investing in crypto. So, and it still work there. I think what you have to be able to do is present a credible threat to politicians of, look, we can organize these people, we can mobilize them, and they can help you hurt in the next election. And you need to show them that, right? So it may be that uh, we need to get 40,000 emails sent in from the crypto community to every single member of the house, um, and you want them coming from people in each member's specific jurisdiction. So they say, okay, these are registered voters. You could vote for me or against me in the next election. So you can do it, and we've seen it work in a bunch of other cases. You know, Bird is another good case of that where our customers would kind of fit into that blurry uh, stereotype in some ways, but we were able to kind of use grassroots to, to legalize these schools in other places. So it's achievable. But it's a big cost and expense, and it's a lot of work, uh, and the leaders of the crypto sector uh, either have to get serious about that, or they have to just accept that they are not going to have any real input in, in their own fate. 
Do you do only uh, crypto investing for companies that are based in the U.S. or have you looked at companies abroad as well? We've looked at so we tend to be um, U.S. focused, and then we also do Israeli companies. Um, so that's kind of been our, our two uh, areas so far. You know, look, we have heard from a lot of different crypto companies uh, from around the world seeking uh, us as investors because look, we in this little weird niche that I'm in, I got them out. Right? We're the only fund that, if we invest, can then put an entire political campaign that could operate in dozens of cities or states or whatever it is into effect on your behalf, and we pay for it ourselves. Right? That's part of what we get, we get the allocation. Uh, so there's been a lot of solicitation of us. I think for us, it's just a question of figuring out one, uh, or you know, do we want to make those investments because we've got to like the company's investment, and then two. Does the company's prior history get to a point where they are politically toxic enough that no matter how good we run a campaign, it won't really matter? So there are some exchanges out there, and I'm not going to name them, but I think people listening to this know who they are, that I think oh, it's just a very tough sell to get regulators comfortable with them based on their history, based on their reputation. And there are others that I think are, are pretty straightforward and reasonable. Moving away from crypto, obviously this is a lot of your focus right now, but what other areas of fintech, since it is such a broad space that's garnering so much attention and dollars lately, uh, are you guys taking close looks at? Yeah, so NFTs would be an obvious one. So we are investing in what we call dibs. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but Mm -hmm. it is a fractionalized trading of of sports collectibles and cards and things like that. Uh, We're really excited about dibs and and what they're doing. And, uh, you know, we had one of the most fascinating calls I've ever been on with the dibs team a couple of months ago, where I I think I can say this publicly. I'll say it anyway, see what happens. (laughs) Um, You know, where we were actually, the conversation was who should be our regulator? Right, because because there is physical custody of the cards by dibs, uh, we know that we are sort of entering into regulated spaces. And I think there are some types of NFTs that are completely digital and completely collectibles, where there really may not be any any real reason to regulate that. But but with dibs, I think our view is it's going to come. So rather than just waiting for a cease and desist letter or someone to come after us. Let's be proactive. Let's think about the different regulators uh, who, who might be able to regulate this, the pros and cons of each, what do we like to work with them, uh, and then go out and talk to them and try to make the case for how we think we should be regulated. And that's really one of the most interesting things right now about fintech is, yes, there are very established laws around banking, but they're not around crypto and DeFi and NFTs and everything else. And so on one hand, it's hard because all the political work that I just talked about has to be done. On the other hand, it's a tremendous opportunity because rather than trying to sort of retrofit old laws to fit a new model of home sharing or ride sharing or betting or whatever it is, uh, you can create the whole thing from scratch and get it right. So we've established that you do a lot of U.S. on the, the crypto side. Does that change at all for a different area of fintech or is that also still very U.S. focused? It's, yeah, I would say the biggest non-U.S. fintech thing we did uh, would be an insurance company called Lemonade. I don't know how much oh, yeah. people consider insurance fintech. Some people don't. We, we do. Um, and Lemonade had their IPO last summer, um, but they we started investing very early on and ran all the campaigns. They get them licensed in every state to sell insurance, and they do it on a peer-to-peer basis. So it's just a different business model than what typical insurers do. Um, they're based in Tel Aviv. So that would mm-hmm. probably be our most significant non-U.S. fintech-related investment. 
There's been a lot of venture funds that have started opening up more to non-U.S. investments. There's like Latin America funds. There's yeah. uh, a lot of people focused on Europe and other. Uh, India is a big area of interest right now, and Africa. Uh, does is that something we should watch for from Tusk, or do you think? Yeah, that absolutely. No, I, I I think so. I think just for us, it's a question of look, wherever there's rule of law and the political process works, then the stuff that we do can make a real difference, right? So. I don't try to do what we do in China because mm-hmm. all of our leverage is based on convincing a politician that they're going to win or lose their next election based on doing what we want them to do, right? If you don't have a country that has free and fair elections to begin with, then, then our whole thesis doesn't work, right? So Russia, China, you know, any country with an authoritarian, totalitarian regime, uh, I think we're not going to be particularly effective. But, you know, Western Europe... Um, a lot of Latin America, a lot of Asia, parts of Africa, Australia, you know, those are all countries where, you know, we can do a version of what we do and I think still be effective with it. So so just depending on the jurisdiction and the market, um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Going back to the U.S. then, what do you think the biggest, like, mistake that we've made in the U.S. from a regulatory perspective has been when it comes to fintech, any area of fintech? And then what do you think the the biggest success story from a regulatory standpoint is? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I, I think the, the, the biggest mistake that we have made, at least in recent history, is being incredibly passive around crypto, right? And two things, being passive around it and the default being negative. Now, maybe mm-hmm. I'm just overly sensitive, but when I hear... Washington regulators talk about crypto, if you were to sort of chart out, is their tone negative or positive, it's much more negative, right? And and to a certain extent, that's because they don't necessarily understand what it is. To a certain extent, I understand that any nation would feel somewhat threatened by a sovereignless currency gaining the kind of popularity that crypto has gotten. But at the same time, um, given that it's one, it's here, it's real, it's not going away. And one of the things that I loved about Coinbase's IPO, other than the returns for our fund, which I was obviously happy about, <laughs> is I just thought it was just incredible validation. Like we can all now finally agree and accept crypto is here to stay, right? It is not some fad. So given that, how should it be regulated? And more importantly, how do we take advantage of this opportunity to really make this an American industry. And so the biggest failure to me is that uh, Treasury, whether it's SEC or CFTC or all the different pieces of it, or the White House for that matter, under Trump and now Biden, um, really have missed that. So that's, I think, the biggest the biggest failure. Um, it's a really good question in terms of, of the biggest success. Look, we have ultimately a relatively stable and effective banking system. It is overly bureaucratic and slow and expensive. And if you are uh, you know, a lower-income person or a minority person of color, you tend to have harder time accessing the system. So it has flaws. But overall, it's a generally well-functioning system, which means if you look back at, say, the last 100 years of regulation, with Glass-Steagall probably being kind of the most meaningful of all of them, um, from a macro standpoint, it has worked. Um, that doesn't mean that, like, Dodd-Frank, you know, they had to do something, um, and we're almost still too soon from it for some scholar to really do a, a good analysis and say, here's what worked, here's what didn't work. Um, you know, it, what's interesting about Dodd-Frank, the only thing that makes me feel like maybe they got it right is 
everyone complains about it. So the banks complain that it was too <laughs> onerous. Uh, the far left complains that nobody went to jail um, and they should have. So, you know, usually when everybody's upset about the outcome of a negotiation, it probably means it landed in the right place. That's very, I had never thought of it that way, but that's a very interesting way to, to think about these things. Um, last question then, when you guys initially invested in Coinbase, it was several years ago, like crypto wasn't that big of a thing. Uh, what sort of convinced you that they would be able to get uh, you know, over a lot of regulatory hurdles that, you know, they've gotten over some, but it's, it's constant yeah. in this space. Yeah. I mean, I, I think combination of, you know, we are, um, at first before anything else, we're investors before we're kind of political strategists, right? So we are always looking for the same basic fundamentals that every other stage investor is in terms of TAM and founder and underlying idea and underlying tech. If all of those are really strong and we love them, We've asked two more questions. One, is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if it were solved could really drive growth and valuation? And if so, two, can we solve it, right? And when the answer is yes to those, that's when it especially makes sense for us to invest. So I think with Coinbase, we didn't go into it thinking, hey, we can solve all of the regulatory problems facing Coinbase and cryptocurrency. It was more Brian's impressive. The company is impressive. There's real product market fit. Um, this is something that has a lot of potential and opportunity. And as this issue evolves from a regulatory standpoint, uh, we can be helpful. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that there are times where we look at it and say, okay, you're, you just go back to lemonade. You can't sell insurance without a license. So it was very binary. Either we did our jobs and then they could go ahead and do theirs or we failed and that would be it. And there are others where you say, okay, look, there's clearly lots of regulatory issues here. They're going to play out over a five or a 10 year period. Uh, we're not necessarily going to solve all of them on day one, nor do we need to. We just need to be in a position to do so. Well, that is a very good place to end on. Um, as we've established this system, this uh, the, the news coming out is happening by the day. So I'm sure we yeah. will need to have you back again. Yeah, uh, I, very this was soon. fun. So any, anytime. And thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, if anyone wants to reach out to um, you or your firm, what's the best way for them? Yeah, to do that? Uh, t t if you go to touchmetrics.com and you've got a, a deal you want to look at or anything else, um, you can find it. Uh, and if you're looking on for me in terms of my podcast, my column, my book, that kind of stuff, if you go to brandlytouch.com, uh, it can write you to that. Awesome. And if you guys want to stay up to date on what they are doing, as well as the broader fintech industry, go to fintechtoday.co and we will keep you posted. Otherwise, thank you for joining us, Bradley. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me.